0: Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host Peter Taz and I'll be taking you on a journey to the world of martial arts and introduce listeners to some of the most aspiring and knowledgeable practitioners from around the world. Whether you're a seasoned martial artist or a curious beginner, or just enjoy hearing a great story, the Mind Sensei podcast down under has something for everyone. So tune in, sit back, and let us take you on a journey through the world in martial arts. Happy New Year 2024, Mind Sensei Community. As we step into a promising canvas of 2024, let us take a moment to cherish the incredible journey that is season one of the Mind Sensei podcast, guided by your host, yours truly, Peter Taz. With just under 2,000 Spotify subscribers, 39 episodes, 20 insightful interviews and bonus content that expanded our martial arts horizon. It's been a year of immense growth, inspiration and profound conversations. A heartfelt thank you to our phenomenal guests and esteemed contributors, without whom this journey would not have been possible. To Graham Elliot, Pete Valdez, Huck Planus, Ed Parker Jr., Marty Zaninovich, Muhammad Tabatabai, Rich Hale, A.C. Rainey, Brian Duffy, Frank Soto, Martin Wheeler, Lee Wedlake, David Jimenez, Paul Dye, Sean Rebecca Knight, Sifu Gary Swan, Doreen Derenzio, Cecil Peoples and our memorial podcast for Sigong Stephen Laboundy. Your wisdom has enriched our community. If you missed any of these insightful episodes or our engaging bonus content featuring Chuck Norris Top 100 Facts with Sensei Pete Valdez and the exploration of time dilation and superconsciousness in martial arts with Mr. James Deary, make sure you go back and check them out. To our loyal listeners, thank you for your continued support. Your enthusiasm fuels the spirit of the Mind Sensei. And we're thrilled to embark on another year with Season 2 in 2024. We kick off the season with the legend, the father of Australian karate, Hanchi Tino Get ready for more inspiration, growth, and captivating conversations on the Mind Sensei podcast. Here's to an extraordinary year ahead. Welcome, honored listeners, to season two and another riveting episode of the Mind Sensei podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today marks the commencement of an extraordinary two-part series delving into the lives and teachings of the true martial arts pioneer the 10th degree Hanshi Tino Cerberano, the revered father of Australian karate, Brace yourselves for a journey that transcends time, cultures and personal boundaries. Imagine a young man stepping onto Australian shores in the early 60s, armed with not just a passion for the art of empty hand, but also an unwavering determination to share with it all who dared to try. In an era infused with the electrifying influence of Bruce Lee, Tino Cerberano faced cultural differences head-on, becoming a beacon of hundreds who flocked to the dojos each week. As we embark on this two-part odyssey spanning over five decades of martial arts mastery, life's challenges and the breaking of self-imposed limits, we uncover the compelling tale of the father of Australian karate, Hanshi Tino Cerberano. This episode is a testament to the transformative powers of martial arts. Enriched with a tapestry of experiences ranging from the islands of Hawaii, to revered dojos in Japan. In part one, we'll traverse in the early years the challenges faced the cultural amalgamation that shaped Tino Cerberano into the martial arts luminary we celebrate today. Join us as we unravel the layers of this remarkable journey, paving the way for part two, where we'll explore the zenith of his influence, the global impact and the enduring legacy he leaves behind. Stay tuned for this narrative that goes beyond the realms of ordinary storytelling the saga of Tino Cerberano, a man whose story unfolds in two parts, each chapter more profound than the last. Get ready to be uplifted and inspired as we commence the unparalleled exploration of martial arts, the one and only Tino Cerberano.
1: Well, welcome to the Mind Sensei podcast, Hanshi Tino Cerberano, the father of Australian Karate. Pleasure to have you on the podcast, oh, yeah. sir. I've been following you for a long, long time. Like I grew up here in Australia and I do know of you for many, many years. Pleasure to have you on. And we're really excited to hear your journey and everything that you've achieved over the years. So welcome to the podcast, sir.
2: Oh, well, I, I'm certainly honored indeed, Peter. You know, this happens to be something of put it as an extended mission, assisting the perpetuation of how it all got started and what interest it is has taken and developed with many people having to, you know, benefit from it.
1: I did a little bit of research. I see you, you did a demonstration in 1963 in Dandenong, and then you applied for permanent residency in 1966. So the year I was born, you applied for residency here in Australia and it all kicked <laughs> off from then. So what inspired you to start practicing in a martial art and how did your journey begin?
2: As a start, it was just somewhat like in the circumstances of how was growing up in the plantation. My parents, of course, being being Filipinos, etc. said they were the migrants that came over to Hawaii and the development of the sugar and the, and the pineapple industry. And, of course, this was results not only what from, from the Filipino Asian ethnic groups, but we had the likes of the Japanese, the Okinawans, the Puerto Ricans, the Portuguese, et cetera. Later on, the Koreans, et cetera. The Chinese, of course, had already been there. It grew up into something that was, as we look back upon it, something is what I suppose we as a mixed culture and something going on in which necessity at the time, you know, there was like, during the time of the war, where I grew up from the time just before Pearl Harbor was born. In that course of time, of days of that growing up, caused a sort of sense of security needs. And how interesting it is that, you know, our, our parents, our uncles, right, they, they merged together really, really fantastically, involving the likes of the martial arts that were adopted our very nature of growing up. So not only did we get into the likes of boxing, the likes of Judo, Jiu-Jitsu, everything that came out of the good work from the, the exchange from the old people. And in doing that, we created something of a difference in Hawaii. I left Hawaii at the time I joined the Marines, etc. in 59. Something that, of course, I was already involved with the martial arts. It was in 56 that I got really involved with Kimpo. Before that, it was my my father, you know, stick fighting, and then got into what was the boxing, et cetera. But it was in 56 that I got into the Kimpo, which was very becoming very popular in Hawaii at the time. Getting into the brains, it was something that I would have been easily familiarized with what we had to learn. And that was a maturing period for myself, as only, only being a teenager. It struck me as having to travel and all that. And this is what took my eye to the first time I ever came to Australia. It was 62, and then following that in 63, there was a purpose of our visits, etc., to Australia. It was, in fact, at that time highlighted First initial visit that the U.S. Navy, the American Marines, etc., came to celebrate the South Pacific campaign during the war, and that was Australia as well. It, it was what we considered a real honor. It was just like a big celebration because I was involved with the headquarters of Pacific Fleet that we were securing as well in, in you know, our first jobs as, as Marines from headquarters. I landed um, in just about every state that we had visited in '62, and found it. Wow, yeah, it was such a uh, <laughs> new frontier. You know, what you would consider the likes of how it was in the wild, wild ways. It's quite exciting. You know, at that time, there was the judo. The judo had already penetrated from the likes of what the military personnel and that sort of thing were already involved. So Julu and Jiu had already taken place from the early 60s and even going back to the late 50s. And boxing, whenever there was even kind of a, a fight or an altercation and all that, this would be where they would, you know, bring on the up and up. <laughs> Two guys would just fight it out until one is buggered or beat, stop, did everybody shake hands. There was not, none of the stuff that people would jump yes. in and that sort of Correct. whatever. None of the kicking, et cetera, where you're on the ground and you're been, It has certainly changed. When I've come back, but when I finally returned in '66, it was to relocate. And it surprised me that what had taken place of my first instant of, you know, setting foot here, what it was in October that I came to Melbourne when I flew out last here. November 6th, when I uh, arrived in Melbourne, set myself where living with my in-laws in Canterbury. Yeah, 1966 it was the first ever invite that I had was at the judo school. It was the Ringwood judo club under Sensei David Jenkins. And this is where Sultan Richard Norman and first ever, I suppose, experienced what it was of Tito Sebrano and his karate. He was one of the seated Yalik fellows on the edge of the dojo floor when I demonstrated what it was. And it was even talked out well well known to everybody, the same cheat all the Judo Association people and having to say, oh, did want a demo at this door to that dojo and who long they've had me locked in traveling right throughout Melbourne and doing the judo dojos, having to do during the week. And it was usually two dojos in a night. And how interesting that it was. People were all interested in what goes with this karate. and Who's this Hawaiian bloke, skinny Hawaiian bloke, glasses, et cetera.
1: The system you study is uh, goju kai, how did you yeah. choose that particular style? How did you get started in Gojukai?
2: Where I live, actually I moved from the island of Hawaii, uh, that's a garden island, to the main island of Oahu. Oahu is the main island that's, uh, where the, the capital city, Honolulu, is located. Well, I went and lived just close by to one of my, one of my senior mentors and, and peers. Until now, was we I used to get together after work, like meet up with the boys that I've met up at work, etc. And it was there that this this one person had just yeah said about they are doing training, etc. This go to that uh that they hero sensei. They just arrived back from Japan and you know am training all this those years, and that was a hero sensei. Come on, we say why not that. Uh, we get together on that weekend and we'll do a bit of training at there. time just up from where they live was the back hills of where it's known as Kalidi. Kalidi, gone spot in that city Honolulu, where all the rockies came from <laughs> this is what happened to me that i finish up in that area and being from the country etc. from yagata island you know i've had to sort myself out and really fit in, and this is how it, you know, got in with the Goju Kai because it, I felt that, uh, wow, after experiencing even that that first uh, get together, I thought, wow, they had something different from what I was taught with the tempo, etc. Where I've come from, you know, just a kick start to how it began with myself heading into the Goju Kai, but it was something that had been different as well. What attracted me was. The rituals, you know how normally in temple, et cetera, we do the bowing, not necessarily into the kneeling or anything to do with what had been very rigid, etc. very Japanese regimentation, like motion, I think. But go to try and all of this. And it took me by surprise, but the, the guys that we joined up with, they were really subject to bow. The Wishir Sensei and taught. I think, you know, it proves something. He was only a, a small, short, shortish guy, and quiet. and he was Okinawan, but of, of Okinawan heritage, but he was born and raised in quiet And he was from the old school of Kempo. He uh, was from the same vintage, like what you would have heard of Bobby Loshi, Han from Kyoko Shinkai, Ed Parker from from temple, et cetera, all of these old guys from Hawaii that has been uh, of renowned um, activities abroad, right? I took on the Gochitai because of that attraction.
1: Who was your sensei, yeah. the first sensei that you studied with?
2: Yeah, my first sensei was my Okinawan temple. His name was Train Imperial, returned yeah. soldier from the, the Korean campaign. And he was cousin of my neighbor who he arrives and come and rock himself up there with where we were in our area camp or where we live. He was a good boxer as well, but he did tempo and he got our kids together. with have one. Only eight of us with neighbors, etc., that always played around, boxed around and, and got around with how, you know, we were as young fellas, etc. And We yeah. okay. got started with tempo, So this was very imperial. Was that Hawaiian Kempo? Yeah, yeah. He, he was Filipino, right? He was Filipino yeah. born and raised in Hawaii. And it was the Hawaiian Temple, the, the actual starter of what became Kanchu Temple. It was a combination of everything that we've all had. And When I got on it to go to, the person got me on the weekend and we uh, worked out the, really myself into the go-to guide was Antoine Navas. Tom so Navas was a very known person particularly in Honolulu, where he led the biggest bicycleking group in Honolulu called the Alis he was like he was like the top top leader of that really big bike gang, the Ali's. chief of Hawaii the like is as you would call a real fantastic person quiet and friendly but Really tough 30, he was a diver. Yeah, he, he went speed diving for, for girls and that sort of thing. That was him who assisted Oshiro sensei. That group that we had of the gochukai there was like a family. He was really, really close and tight. We were no more than, oh, I would say at the best, about 50 with the three of four little uh, branches, etc. We were about fifty to seventy-five strong in our numbers, but before Goginja Moguchi came out, we had his eldest son, Gose, having to stop by in nineteen sixty on his way to on to America when he got posted away as a teacher as well at the San Francisco State College. Then we had also some of the other instructors, Goginja Gonya Yamamoto was a well-known person that became like the, the tough gochukai fighter of Japan at the Yamaguchi. Rather interesting, we've had the likes of quite a lot of visitors, etc. coming back and forth to Hawaii. One that I might mention was uh, something uh, like Don Draper. Don Draper was uh, also a very close friend of Master Shiro Master Oshiro. Don Drega, as we all know, has been that person that was the first Westerner with the very ranking file of, of judo and and Kobujitsu in general, because he was uh, the person in, in the weaponry as well as we saw him in the movies, that, the 007 movie, right, it's famous Don Drega, mm-hmm. his mother was from California, he was from California, so he'd go back home and drop into Hawaii and yep. That was annoying, yeah
1: when you did hawaiian yeah. kempo how many years did you do hawaiian kempo before you then started doing goju goju kong yeah
2: 12 years old that i got started and then at the age of 16 was when i shifted to honolulu so yeah that was four years of kempo. i did Kyokushin for three months first under Bobby Law before getting into goju kai and it was yes, there's a uh, last end of 59 etc turning on to 60 that I uh, I really want what it was of the good toaii interest then was of course when I returned back from my boot camp and from America mm-hmm. having to really lock in taking residence in Honolulu as well and having to train uh, in Gui since how did you get to meet the founder? It was actually in 1962 as an American Marine that we did a tour with my car, with the company that I was with. And I, I finished off having to go to Japan in 62, just on a quick short visit. But it was only for two months that I stayed, that we stayed in Shibuya, Tokyo. I had a chance to go and sort out what it was of the Ujibai headquarters. And it was there that, yeah, it was there that I, not met him personally, but witnessed him in the presence of our training, etc., at the dojo. It was only for a couple of months that I was there, but it was just like an attaching visit. So when I come back home to Hawaii, it was really exciting that I would, you know, was even able to, you know, mention that I had been to Tokyo, etc. But it was when he arrived to Hawaii, where. We brought him out specifically as a visiting master, but really the first black belt grading under him, under him personally. This is when I gotten graded to my third day in ranking as well. What year was that? It's 66. It was a turn over, turning over from 65 to 66. And this is when I had left 66. When they saw me off, including Gobi and Yamaguchi his son, Goshi, and my instructor, all of us, the guys from Hawaii, go sending me off, come to a stadium. When we had him there, it was certainly for all the advantages that uh, we had taken was intensive training and everything, really and go through the nitty-gritty of why Goju Kai, what Goju Kai, and how it was all about that the Goju Kai took its course and development. I might mention something of interest as well. Mm-hmm. And this did not come to head to really bring about something that I reckon Govind I represented Japan. And so did of course was from Bukinao. But do G- Gokin Yamaguchi had been involved with the training of Kuju from the time he was at the university in Mitsubishi and Kyoto that he had touched tax basis with Chojin Miyagi, only but shortly, I suppose this is what I've been told. In fact, perhaps not even personally trained or being treated by Chojin Miyagi. Now, I was getting to the point where Chojin Miyagi and right, Master Chokubutogu showed me, they both were the first two was Japanese or Okinawa karate uh, exponents able to be invited into America. And that was soon to Hawaii, on the island of Hawaii, where I was born. That was in 1934. So of an interest, it's like next year's celebration of 90 years to what would be from the host of the Okinawan Association and the newspaper on forward that will be bringing about the celebration. I uh, would also mention something of interest. You know how the Karate Kid film, right? With Miyagi, the supposedly uh, fictional, but it will be factful. Uh, Miyagi on an island and doing you know what he did in the Karate Kid film. Well, even with that French fiction in, in the featured. Uh, uh, symbols, etc., made quite sense that it was towards the end that they were really talking about or making um uh, uh release of the actual uh loaded mass that day in Hawaii. Yeah. Do you have
1: any memorable yeah. moments training with Gogen Yamaguchi and that you can
2: recall? Yeah. It it was really, really something that I, I'd never forget in fact. Exactly. I think the first night, yeah, the first night that we trained on the hill you know, um, working up to this visit, et cetera, of course, we all had to really, really buckle down and really work out and that we didn't get to me all during the weekend. It just so happened. And in one instant, I broke my nose. I even had a sort of split on my nose. The way we we trained in the woods all day, so it never mattered about. You know, in this, we were always very much respectful and having to give uh, understanding to each other how, and what limitations that we had. We'd go, we go, him a today. Everybody would be trying to impress, right? Work hard and make sure that he realizes that we are all, you know, giving our very best. And that's not, again, it's not, the dogs again, and it bled in. And he pulled me aside and set me down and he touched yes, the edge of my upper part of the nose plus his other hand just in the back of my head just at the, at the cleavage of the below the cranium of the head. and the blood stopped flowing and in fact after blowing my nose etc not only did the blood stop flowing but it, I was able to breathe freely and, and it, it was just a surprise because it never ever led since even from the time he left. It was something that I never forget. It was absolutely like what it was as the, we've come to know his qualities and, as a person, as a person who uh, had a lot of experience, that he was also like as a healer. He was able to help people with injuries. And, and mainly with the likes of putting bones together and having to exercise what proper first aid would be, but most definitely he had the quality of being able to uh, understand why nerve, nerve center training and all very quiet, lots of, lots of training.
1: When did you first get your black belt?
2: Nineteen sixty was when I had the transfer from from my my temple to go to, right? And it was handed to me, it was handed to me as if, you know, like I was transferring because I had been doing this, been doing that, but because my entry to the school and just having to just go flat out into what it was of that go to entry. But it was also in 1961 that I had formally been put into the basis of not only receiving the back belt properly, because I had returned back from my uh, boot camp and establishing the the duty um, of what to call the ITR, that's uh, infantry training with the Marines, so I got stationed in Hawaii. But I came back and I got put to my bases to burn that black belt proper. That was not only for lining up, but for also being able to showcase having to. Um, Take one or two training methods, et cetera, that I was asked to perform in training. At that time, even as how I selected the very words that I speak by. And I discussed this really strongly with my instructor then. And even as how you know my ment- uh, my mentor and senior peer that Anton that I mentioned, I used the words. This is what I think that I should really portray and keep. It's not the soul, but the man. They agree. And they really, really uh, accepted that of myself. And then I kept sense and portray what it is. That's very, very much my belief. And then later on, in fact, something from Bougainé Bougouche himself to reinforce that. I'll mention it later in my talk the three-spirit
1: way. Well, I I always keep saying that every person is an ambassador for their own art. So it's exactly what you said. It's a practitioner, not the style.
2: Yes. Well, you see the talent from everyone. If it is considered, like as we put it, an art, then, you know, styles come from what it is of the the instructor's uh, method of which he teaches it. And what has been perhaps customized by his interpretation of how he profess. Now, we are all learners, and we never stop learning. This is how I I see, even to this very day, well over the many, many decades of training, I'm still learning and enjoying it.
1: Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think the more you learn, the less you figure you know, right? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Forever, a, forever, a student. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was talking to one of my other guests, and uh, we're just saying that some of the best lessons we learn are from the white belts, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, isn't that interesting? Because, I mean, every person has got a certain trait, isn't it? I mean, we all go differently from each other in every way. Yeah. Right?
1: Definitely. And,
2: you know, I, I picked up something that I, I, I thought how interesting it is that. You know, as we get older, a lot of people with knee problems, particularly in the knees or in the hip, etc. for the kind of exercises that we had never ever thought that this would come on us, especially getting older, the arthritis, like so. everything to do with what is the breakdown of the body. And crucial times, especially when we get older. so. We looked at, you know, things, I have looked at things, and I said, why should we have followed, like, the lights of these short-legged orientals? And I say short-legged. You think the Japanese, and even looking at if you you and you know, down into the daily position or in the Satan position, right, you would see that our height of our upper body, the upper torso of our body from hip onto our head, it's usually always the same, but it is when we stand that it hits us. So much to say that, you know, their kicks or they spread in their legs, and all that sort of stuff makes quite a difference how flexible all that dexterity can come with their, their biological self, where we Westerners with we longer legs have to suffer the consequences of the country, back to to us, right? And this is where we suffer. But taking on like what ballet dances look at uh, Rudolph Neuer, the greatest ballet dancer, all that muscular extension st- 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 that he had. You know, well, how high can he raise his legs, or flexible and all that? It's only with proper training without a correct, the correct. money we- correct. that we yeah. engage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is now science. Yeah.
1: So how did you actually meet the founder, like Gojin Yamaguchi? How did that come about?
2: Well, this was when he personally came to Hawaii, and this is where I was already uh, uh, assigned as uh, also one of the instructors from this particular dojo that we call the Judd Street Dojo in, uh, in Honolulu. On his arrival at, of course, we were the welcoming party. So this is personally where I first met him, and, and that was in the uh, ending of 65-66 that we had him there. Such an exciting thing that, uh, you know, you would finally meet somebody of uh, well-spoken of and that sort of thing about what it was of the, the known cat man and all that sort of stuff. So it was very much an intrigue on our part, but having to just take it in as how we should have been as instructors with every bit of intention on making good for our uh, personal performance. Will, <laughs> we were like, you know how uh, they say in the Japanese way, right? You got three different levels of bowing. When you are bowing to the likes of uh, the emperor, you go right down horizontal with your body, or parallel, right to the floor, as it raises in two different sections. The second one, maybe in a little bit of uh, respect and reverence, particularly like even to your your teacher, and then just the top one, just a nod. Well, that's just a, a friendly gesture of acknowledgement, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But with yeah. Gogeknyama it was oh man, you know, felt like he was some kind of a god. But uh, yeah, it was really interesting because I also thought at the time that he was already an aged person, uh, not only well matured and well, you know, well known for his his presence and how his leadership created, you know, such a notoriety. Even when I just turned eighty a couple of years back, I thought wow he he died at the age of 80. i was there i was there at his funeral i I was there the year before he passed away so i'm thinking wow all of those years that we always thought that he was already well matured into his 80 you know aging years but no that's how it was i suppose in view of later down the line having known even more intimately, what it was of his earlier years—not only respectful for what it had been mentioned to us—that you know we should keep this maybe perhaps personal. That guy lived a, a rather rough life in his earlier years. He became, you know, a colonel with the Imperial Japanese Army. Was involved with those Japanese that invaded Manchuria and say no boy yeah. things changed when he returned back after to the war returned back to japan and did something of a difference because i think this is where he proved himself as, as a person who genuinely wanted to bring together something of a of a group the Gojukai japan and he traveled throughout japan having to not only you know see all these other guys etc to join under him but it must have been the hard years, particularly post-war days, that he had to um pull people together into what they became. That's uh, how I would have taken, even for appreciation of the first meeting with him.
1: I did notice, I, I saw a, um, on YouTube your interview with Bert Newton on um, Good Morning Australia a long time oh, ago. Yeah, yeah. That was very nice. Yeah. There was a female... There helping you. Who was that that was with you there? Just out of interest, she was wearing a red gi.
2: Had a female student with you. Yeah, yeah. She happens to have a a show. I, I think a program of her own right now, in in something of a, a motivational leadership activity. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Jenny, she's um a, a part Aboriginal uh, actually, and and quite a, you know. What a very, very active girl that she was. You know, okay. so she was oh, very true. strong and very dedicated in her training. Yeah. yeah.
1: I did notice when I was watching the video of your your book release, your son handed you a ukulele.
2: Yeah. So Can
1: you tell us a little bit about well, that? Actually, because uh, I have an interest. I, I'm I'm a ukulele person myself. So Oh really. Yeah. You know, I I've been
2: wanting to really get back. I've got that ukulele, you know. I haven't used it uh, for a bit yet because I've had uh, a calcified finger, my first finger of my left hand. You know, my my key, my key piece finger that I should be of of use, etc. But well, the
1: beauty of the ukulele is you can with two fingers you can play three hundred songs, right?
2: Yeah, well, no, I need four fingers. <laughs> you no, know, I was somewhat like, In for most. Hawaiian locals, etc. We always pick up a, a tune or two, but this is something that uh, I'm gonna say. It's a little bit of a, a dead giveaway to call on the young ladies, yeah, especially yeah. <laughs> especially during the summer. I can tell you what: the American girls coming across to Hawaii for their summer uh, school courses, etc. In Hawaii meeting up with all the local boys expressing down the beach, trying to be, a, <laughs> trying to be a beach bum, etc. and all yeah, that yeah. stuff. Out comes the ukulele.
1: Be, <laughs> be Mr. Cool with oh, the ukulele, yeah. right? <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. That's
2: for sure, man. Yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah. So I got into the ukulele cause Ed Parker used to play the ukulele. Yeah. Well, and well, and I've got finger, yeah. I've got fingers like him, I'm told. So I thought if he could, oh, Yeah. I could do it, and yeah, but I had one of the gentlemen that I know, Huck Planus. He he got me into it. So when I had him here, oh yeah. right, so and yeah. now now I have a collection. Oh yeah, yeah, oh fantastic. So I really took to it. So it's my favorite instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, so you playing obviously in Hawaii?
2: Yeah, you you know this is something that all I suppose when I say all most locals that get into that sort of mode of activities that you can. You, you cannot bypass it because it was just sort of influence to you from school days, right? So everybody got into the singing and and that sort of thing, especially as you're getting older. Out comes the ukulele. Even in training, now this is in training our dojo. After training, getting together for what it is called the dollar dollar session <laughs> with shipping a dollar to go and get a box of beer, etc. And entertaining ourselves before we go home with a with a primobile at that time, primo lucky laga etc. Nice. In those days, yeah. Oh, the ukuleles would come out, guitars. Oh, <laughs> absolute fun. So, did you spend some time in
1: Hawaii? Yeah, get- I, ha- oh, I have. I have been to Hawaii. I went there for my fiftieth. Oh, I, I've been to Hawaii goodness. before, but but I did go to Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. And I bought myself a very nice ukulele while I was there and I did the whole, oh, uh, I did the whole uh, Kamaka tour of the Tamaka factory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and oh, we, you know, yeah, I love it. It was good. Menace, menace. Very, yeah. very good, very good. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Love Hawaii. It was beautiful.
2: Oh, good on you.
1: Have you traveled for karate outside of Australia to other countries to teach?
2: Yes. Well, see, when I got involved, with having been nominated and then finally pulled in, to become fourth vice president of the World Karate Union. That was in 1974. It was subject to 1973, our first Asia-Pacific APOC championship in Singapore. I was also then pulled in to become an administrator as a vice president as well then. Then the year after, I got big Congress there, the the gathering of the WUKODEN to become fourth vice president, and following that also becoming member of the six men World Refugee Free Council. So on that note, that is what took me to the many countries on assignments, etc., to follow up with what we were to um, pro- uh, propagate or even bring about, say, new rules or changing of the, the competition policies, etc., and having to converse with the countries that we were involved with in 47 of them.
1: What, yeah. what countries were they that you went
2: to? Well, all Europe for a start, right? Poland, Spain, to Portugal, of course, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, South Africa, passing through and just sitting into meetings and getting involved with the kind of quick training, etc most important were the ones that were the host for the World Championships that we had, such as in Spain, in Malaysia, over in Italy, with in America, of course. And, you know, this is how it had gone. I had never given thought to what it was that the martial arts then was such a, uh, how shall I say, influence to a lot of people even getting together you know, the way it was getting together, not necessarily for the competition factor, but just of course to, you know, the sort of social connection and bonding with people and uh, that I I miss, particularly when we get into the places of the well-renowned big time competitions, like mainly from Japan or or from Spain or from America, of course, in Los Angeles with a big uh, 1974 uh, World Championship was held and all the other smaller places that were just simply more informality of keeping people in check for what it is of the interest from the headquarters in Japan and, and bring better conditions. You see, i felt that i was more like a the meat in the sandwich being you know like a a foreigner at that but even so much as an asian representing what it was from japan because i fell right into familiarity with all the all the masters in japan when i went and stopped with gogin hanshi there for a short while and then whenever i'd gone back to japan sometimes even three times in a year having to be with him, I'd meet with all the people that have come across from different countries, and I'd be somewhat of the spokesperson. Not so much as an interpreter, but the actual person that would make clarity to what it is that was being desired for them to know. And now I feel more so that the release of my book and open the doors for people to communicate with me now coming out of the woodwork in how many people that I've touched bases with and uh, exchange. I'm getting calls from Asia, of course, from the Pacific Islands, and even, all oh, when South Africa and Europe, oh, Switzerland, Germany, oh, I feel, you know, if it is something that we could recollect and this is something of a seriousness in, in communicating with all of these other people. The martial arts should regard even so much as I put it, Tempo is something of importance to me now that I realize the older days of our my youth, it was like the the the, the Actual grassroots program, the how karate had involved many many development and propagation, not only where we come from, you know, Hawaii and America, etc., but other places in the world. I mean, communication with those guys from Portugal, right? From Chile, from Brazil. You know, they were they from temple. The they, you, you've heard of the. Chan Hun family in in Portugal. no, no I haven't. No. Um uh, Chan Kun. Chan Hun. Hun Ohana. Yeah, the Ohana means family in Hawaiian, yeah. right? But yeah. they're from I, I think you were referred in Hawaii of Professor Number One, tough boy of Honolulu, right? The, Professor Chow. Um, Professor Chow, yeah. yeah. That's how the Chow Kun family. He was from the Chow Kun family. And that is where my instructor as well, Osirio Sensei, and even Bobby Law, James Miyagi, and all of these guys from Hawaii were all together, under him? Yeah? Yeah. It was such a big thing. But anyway... As a Kempo guy, I have to ask, did you get to meet Ed Parker? They looked after me when I was in in California when I came for that World Championship in 1974 there in Long Beach. But my brother Ed came to pick me up. In fact, over in 1988, you would have seen the photograph that had been on the uh, Facebook that hosted the South Pacific Connection or the Piliana of Hawaii over in Honolulu where we had Brother Ed, we had Professor Twalik J. We had even Fred Imperial, my my first instructor. Ah, oh, man, he was something else. Joseph Troche from, from Shotokan. So you did meet Ed Parker, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He hit Hawaii. I met him firstly in, in California, of course. Became good friends with Danny Nosanto as well, you see. Yeah. This was back in nineteen sixty yep. when uh, we yeah, when Danny Nosanto was still with Ed Parker. Yeah. This is <laughs> something a lot of times we go back on the old days and oh, yes, oh, yeah, correct. Guru Dan's still around, still teaching. You know it's incredible, you know, I, the, the last time I saw him was when he was in Melbourne. I went and joined up with him for a couple of, and catching up on the old days. You still teach
1: at the moment. You're still part of, or you're retired, or no,
2: I, no, I would never retire. Well, nice, nice. This is something that uh, I feel quite strongly about with regards to training. This is uh, how I put it? It's uh, something of a stimulant. It keeps you going because it's yes. considered when we talk about you know the uh, the. The mind, the body, and the soul. I said the soul is in the staying power. Yes, all three must be in connection all the time, and this is where our desire to learn, becoming responsible at what we were doing, etc., will take control of our existence. Actually, this is you know again all pie and parcel, right? I don't believe that we should even consider the mode of retirement. So I don't have a dojo as I did back in Melbourne, but I do have all the people that are connected up with me, as in even associates that I go on, on invites to go and run seminars and those that linked up with me at one time or another in doing our gojo training and still perhaps are former students of mine. I've gone and evaluated and assessed, bring about their grading if so, what I've done. Yeah, nice. No, but no. uh yeah, I was gonna mention that in Okinawa I'm still I'm very much closely related to the the ones from the ones that have graded me from the Okinawa Budo International that was shared by Iken Tokashiki from Tomarite and he was one of the actual a uh, chairperson of the Kinawa Goju Dream Day, the connection with Mitokuyagi's dojo and Okama Sensei, the Iga Sensei dojo at Goju, you know, all of those guys that were present for doing my grading of my seventh ten back in ninety one, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just simply, you know, respect and give every bit of, you know, courtesy and time. We're all getting older. Yes, and, definitely, definitely. You know. Is-
1: I remember growing up and seeing you in the in the magazines when I was young. Oh, God. Uh, yes, yeah.
2: So yeah. Big fan. Probably well, 82 in two months. Nice. Yep. It's a blessing. A blessing in disguise yes. for what we can just acknowledge. But yes. it's something that I keep on pushing through with a lot of people now realizing what I'm on about. Yes. We call it the new era. New era. N-E-W-E-R-A. Because, like, in a new unit of time that we are in this generation, right, we can see a lot of things that needs happening. And if we put it together in the words for acronym, N-E-W is never-ending work. And E-R-A, effective response activities. So we get on with it, yeah? Yes. That's how yeah. it is. Yeah. Enjoy go with the flow
1: I have a good friend Master Tabatabai and his version of your ERA activities is you get busy you got to get busy oh yeah yeah oh fantastic yeah you know you got to get busy he says and I'm like yep understand so
2: yes well this is it you see that I I feel really importance of having to create this uh, bond and fellowship with our, our other comrades of the martial art. It's necessary because I believe this is how I put it as well to a lot of people. We're a special breed of people. You know what I'm saying? We, we not only have an interest in our art, etc., for what we do, but how much we are thinking about caring and sharing and daring to do better than good. And that's how we put it, yeah. created this. On. Totally agree,
1: yeah. What are your thoughts on cross-training? And, you know, you've obviously done other martial arts as you've grown up. And I noticed that with your Goju Kai, you had called yeah. it called uh, Goju Anis. So can you tell yeah. us a little Go- bit Go- about
2: Kani's? that? Go- goju Yeah. Kali. sorry, yep. yeah. Yeah, it's no longer, I'm no longer with the Goju Kai. As Kai meant, like as an association, that had been like what had been with uh, that is even uh, yeah, now, with the Goshi Yamaguchi's group, right? IKGA. But there's Goju Kai, Japan, Goju Kai everywhere that's not necessarily linked with Yamaguchi. Well, a- after Gogen Anchi had died, and this is where I was coming on with that wording that I was to, to use as the KSD, Ku Shin Do, the pre spirit way. And when I had come on into had a falling out. That would have been the better way of putting it. And indirectly, when there was our meeting of big of the, of the big top guns in Japan after Goven Yamaguchi passed, it was put directly to me by the one that take the Goshi Yamaguchi took over. I no longer would hold any post administratively with the Goetsukai Australia, which I was the chief referee. I, I mean, I was the chief. I was yeah. the chief instructor. Yeah. And then I was only to be regarded as chief instructor for the state of Victoria. Mm-hmm. I was no longer also available to do anything internationally with taking on any kind of official positions. That You know, this was something of what had never, never ever Pass. So yeah. I took reference on what I would have said. Okay, I'm off, and that I was. And having done that, I reestablished what was the I.G.K. International Goju Karate. Well, having done that, when I started to explore what it was, that is, uh, you know, it happens to be when you even create something into an organization that particularly tried to catch up on the loss of uh, uh, participants, etc., like as in competition. Yeah. It created what had been established and it still exists more so today for politics. It's not what I envisioned or wanted to follow up of what Gorgian Yamaguchi had desired in his later years he mentions that they should be really related to in view of making it like as a family. So he used the word kushindo, the the free spirit way. That is the reason why. I now look at what I brought into effect. The Kali, the word Kali is well known throughout the Malay archipelago. It is something that originally in India from the ideology of the Hindi goddess, Hindi religion. And this meant like as in uh, self-protection. So it covers and complements what it is of self-defense, of what martial arts is all about. And yeah. we know very well that it had uh, traversing to the even Indians perhaps being where the Buddhist monk, everything that had happened about martial arts traveling right up to, to China, everywhere. But the word Kali still existed in some way or another, like over in the, in India still, Kalari Payat, or in Malaysia, Kuntao, in, in the Philippines, Kali is something that we could even combine genetically what it is from the word of Escrema, which is a Latin word, but which is connected with fencing. And the word Arnes is a Spanish word that connects up with what the Spanish had influenced for the use of their alma. So I thought that being, of course, of my heritage and with my father having to influence the life of my afterthought, why not bring in the word using that? I have also engaged in the Filipino stick fighting, knife fighting, and, and what it is. I say, I'm going to now name it as Goju Kalis. Kalis being like the overall um, uh, exercise of the Filipino art. The word Goju is a metaphor. And I use that in a word of uh, the hard and soft, the positive, negative. Yep. The yin and yang, you name it, right? But it is when we come into grips with study, right, of our martial art. From the time we are infants to the time we reach 50. This turning point of reaching 50 is all the time that we've done our hard yard, learning to survive. And this is basically the hard sector of the learning. But what the word in Japanese, goju, or in Okinawa, goju, means fifty-five zero. 0. Then the soft part must be from 60 on. And if we use 60 as a guide word, guideline word, to highlight, why not reach till 100? And that happens to be now like a, a balance to bring and fold the goju, as how it should be understood. Now we know biologically, etc., mentally, intellectually, etc., whatever, that at a later age, as we preparing, particularly in, in the use of 60, the softer sector of our lives, it's passive, it's a little bit more of the uh, having to look at uh, things that We can handle for our bodies as we're getting older. That doesn't mean that it's weakened or anything like that, but we're handling in a new unit of time and this carries on. So that is the soft. That is what we say. Let's take on something that works. Let's take on why the empty hand, as in like how they use it in in boxing and wrestling and grappling and in the use of the actual weaponry, etc. is all compiled and coincide with that learning facility. So that's how I put together what it is of the wording Go to Police.
0: As we draw the curtains on this enthralling installment of the Mindsets A podcast, I extend my deepest gratitude to our listeners for joining us on this remarkable journey into the life of the father of Australian karate, the 10th degree handsheet Tino Cerberano. In part one, we traversed the early years, witnessed the challenges and marveled at the cultural amalgamation that has shaped Tino Cerberano into the martial arts luminary he is today. His story is a testament to resilience, passion and the transformative power of the art of the empty hand. For this is merely the beginning of an epic tale. Part two awaits us next week where well, we'll explore the zenith of Tino Sobrano's influence, his global impact and the enduring legacy he leaves behind in the world of martial arts. The journey continues and the best is yet to come. So mark your calendars and set your reminders. Don't forget to join us for this thrilling continuation of Tino Sobrano's saga in part two of our special two-part series. Until then, keep the spirit alive and remember, the path of the true martial artist is one of continual growth and inspiration. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to having you back. For the next installment of the Mind Sensei podcast. Stay inspired, stay connected, and stay ready for the next chapter in this extraordinary life of Tino Cerberano. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from down under. We want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at MindSensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos, and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei Podcast Down Under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.